This is how we overcome the moving on the kingdom. Reaching to the world's arms open, arms open, yeah. This is how we practice Well, welcome back to Crazy Faith Talk. I'm Sarah. I'm Steve. And I'm Erica. And uh, you've been joining us, hopefully, for the last several episodes as we've been talking about what we've been calling the unspoken God, the ways that we connect with God uh, in ways that transcend just the written word on the page or the spoken word preached or the sung word in a hymn or a song or praise and how God is beyond all those things. We've talked about those moments in our lives when it feels like you have like Man, divine fingerprints on that moment. God's leading you, nudging you, directing you, where you just experience God. We've talked about the long tradition in Christianity of contemplative prayer, of silence, of intentional uh, practice of the presence of God um, and discovering God in nature and things like that. Uh, where are we going to go today? So, Steve, you just mentioned we, we've touched on discovering God in nature, but we're going to expound on that a little bit today and, and seeing how that um, if there are limits to that, because so okay. often I know for myself, I do find God in nature quite a bit and the beauty of nature and things like that. But sometimes, you know, as with all things, there there should be some boundaries on that, because what's, what I might see as beautiful in nature, somebody else might not see as beautiful. And does that mean that God's not in that thing or it is in this thing? You know, right. he is in this thing. Yeah. So so like right from the from the get go, we're going to be focusing in on how we experience God in creation, maybe other places as well. But at least in those moments where we feel like we're experiencing God or connecting with God, what can we or can't we lean on or, or can we conclude from those kinds of things? Because obviously a difference between verbal, you know, spoken sentences about God, like out of one of Paul's letters, is there's a certain clarity. So when Paul says nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus and then rattles off a list of all the things that can't separate us, it might feel like it's redundant or like, okay, we get the point, but he is being clear. Nothing can separate us, but it's harder to read what's the meaning of a leaf or what's the reading <laughs> the meaning of a caterpillar or for that matter the cycle of nature which can be beautiful and horrifying at the same time right right i was noticing um that the office administrator of the church i serve now um just shared a photograph the other day on social media that i think her her husband or someone in her family had taken and it was right in their yard and it was a praying mantis and it was really cool because they could get up really really close at this praying mantis but this praying mantis was eating a honeybee <laughs> and it was like whoa that's a cool thing you don't get to see very often but that is also kind of terrifying because a praying mm -hmm. mantis up close looks like you know the closest thing to a movie monster there is uh or an alien or something and i i, I want to like honeybees because they make honey and pollinate and we need them so like it was one of those moments of that's really really interesting like the third grade boy in me that likes gross things was really excited and also a little bit terrified and if you ask me where's god and all that that's hard to suss out, right? The the mantis doesn't come with instructions or a catechism, like find God here. Yeah, because I think that there's like the quick and easy answer, like where is God in this? It's like, oh, well, God created this. Like um, I, mm -hmm. I am a firm believer that evolution is part of God's design. And so like over this huge amount of time, praying mantises have come into being and so have honeybees and they're part of this really great ecosystem that has this like really great checks and balances like 
that I can see God in, but it's also one of those like, uh, that's, that's, that's gross and ugly. So like, I don't really necessarily see the, um, any, really anything beyond just like the cool, oh, God created this. And like, I, and I'm, I'm with you. Cause I can say it, maybe we could say God's present in that whole rhythm, the whole, we could break in a circle of life. Right. I mean, like right. there's a whole chain of things <laughs> that everything feeds everything else. And even when something dies and its body goes back to the ground and becomes soil, that's where you know, new seeds and new life spring. I, I could, I could get that. And at the same time, it seems to me like at, at least for people who are committed to the Christian narrative, um, like we tell stories about say, um, pharaoh versus the enslaved hebrews and we say like well that story suggests that god isn't just well sometimes people dominate others and that's how it goes god's in the beautiful interplay of enslaving other people and the strong dominate the weak what a beautiful rich tapestry is creation but we say no god was on a particular side in that conflict right that god was there liberating the hebrew slaves taken pharaoh down a few pegs and that part of the the faith that is witness to the story of israel is god often in the midst of those who are lowly rather than God endorsing uh, the, the powerful and the dominating, just stomping on people or just, or destroying them. And yet the cycle of nature so often is the animal with uh, bigger claws or more muscle or more power eats the thing that's smaller and weaker. And that's the circle of life too. So like, how do we, how do we either make the move from the natural world to the human world or put some guardrails and go, well, okay, this is how it is for praying mantises and beasts, but this isn't how it is for people. That that to me says there's got to be limits on what conclusions we draw about God as we read creation. I wonder, too, if we need to wrestle with our own sense of beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Yeah. And that we as humans, we tend to have very clear ideas about what is and is not beautiful. And therefore, we have a tendency to go, oh, beauty equals good all those good things in nature, we can easily quickly see God, right? Right. Um, like, uh, I, I've mentioned on this series before that, Steve, I really, really have been enjoying your social media posts with like the really beautiful, artful pictures and like good morning world yeah. that God loves and like with a little bit more like poetic language about whatever the picture is. Um, and they're all very beautiful pictures, but they're not usually well, pictures of like the mud. Yeah. And, and honestly, <laughs> I've seriously thought about that point in our conversation um, and about the importance of how do we make room for God's presence in the unpleasant looking things, too. Yeah, so uh, I think that that is like all of these things, right, we have to kind of mm -hmm. wrestle with because it's because I think they're all interconnected. Like, OK, I'm going to go with the mud theme for a minute right because mud is a good thing even though it's mm -hmm. not a beautiful thing right because <clears throat> mud means that there is dirt soil which we need to grow things um and moisture wetness rain water um and hopefully the correct amount of water <laughs> that it doesn't drown the whatever is trying to grow mud is a good thing when it's outside but we don't particularly love it when it's inside. So like we have this like negative thing. So, but like is, is mud that is part of nature? Like, can we see God in the mud? Well, and I, I think back there to an earlier time, which mud was used for building, mm. you know, and, and especially taken way back to, to the biblical times, I think of the Exodus story, you know, and using mud to build bricks, to build the pyramids and everything. And so, 
yeah, I think in that sense, it's very much a good thing because it built shelter to protect people and to keep them safe. And so is, is mud a gift from God? Yes. Um, when it gets in your house and makes your house dirty, it's a little bit harder to see as a gift of God because it means, oh, crap, now I got to clean. Uh, now, if you like to clean, that's fine. But Do you mean to say that we don't appreciate all of the gifts that God has given us? Is is mud <laughs> the socks that you get on Christmas Day when you really wanted a toy? <laughs> Maybe, maybe mud is the sauce you get on Christmas. I, I, I do think that we, we do not appreciate nearly enough the gifts that God gives us, um, and it's not just mud. You know, there, there are everyday things. I often say every week in my worship services, you know, when I do my pastoral prayer, we start with Thanksgiving and giving God thanks for all the good that He's done in our lives. And I'll say something along the lines, you know, if we were to mention everything, we'd be here for hours. Um, because we don't notice, you know, we don't notice the sunrise, um, but we also don't notice mud, you know, like the sunrises are easy and like, say, yeah, God is in the sunrise. Mm-hmm. It's hard to say that God is in the spotted lanternfly, um, that, you know, the state is in Pennsylvania is telling us to kill, uh, because they're in they a species. They are less concerned about that now. So, so obviously there's spotter and lantern flies for those of you who don't know are um this invasive new species that has come to Pennsylvania and probably mm-hmm. other parts of north north america and um the big fear is that they would kill certain trees or all trees like i'm not really sure so we were supposed to kill yeah. them see them um they've been here now for a couple of years and there hasn't been any noticeable damage so just recently i've heard that like yes they're invasive we should not encourage them living here but also it's not as dire as they initially were predicting. So I, they just came to my County like about a month or so ago. And I saw a couple of my yard and of course did what the state told me to do and kill them. And I I have one sitting like on my back porch. I just haven't done anything. <laughs> it's just kind of like in there. And then I see the little woolly worms that get out this time of year. You mm-hmm. know, the ones that supposedly predict what the winter is going to be like. And I'll kick them out of the way, like when I'm opening a door, <laughs> um, because apparently they're okay, but this, you know, this lantern fly is not, um, you know, and it, it's like the the um, the praying mantis Steve was talking about, like praying mantises are cool, but when they eat something like a honeybee, a little gross and a little bit like mm, I don't know about that. It's, I, I think it goes back to the circle of life, right? Like mm-hmm. in the checks and balances of the ecosystem and how it's, it's, we, we tend to go, Ooh, this cute fuzzy thing that we really like, we, we prioritize it over this thing that needs that eats that cute thing that we really like. Um, and, you know, I think we have historically good reasons for that. Like we didn't want to give the wolves our sheep. Mm-hmm. You know, back in olden days when we had flocks of sheep, like, you know, shepherds in the Bible, like you didn't just like sacrifice one of your sheep to the wolves. Like, no, because the sheep yeah. were your livelihood. Um, but yet we also need to recognize that the wolves do need to eat like and it is good to have the wolves as part of the ecosystem. Um, you know, they I, control I, other things. Yeah. They don't get out of control. 
Right, right. Like I remember when wolves were reintroduced to Yellowstone Mm -hmm. and the wonderful things that came of that. And, you know, it was amazing, like how this one predator was able to help the checks and balances in the ecosystem. Um, But yeah, we have a tendency to make those morality judgments on certain parts of nature because it's like it's we we don't value it as much as other things like we would never squash a butterfly for being in our yard but we sure would squash a cockroach if we saw them even in the yard because cockroaches are gross Mm -hmm. um you know (laughs) even though i say this that i'm probably not going to change my behavior if i see a cockroach i'm still probably (laughs) going to squash it but like even the cockroach has value in the system yeah i i'm not sure what that value is <laughs> you know it's it's got to be there somewhere it has to be right <laughs> it's like the mosquitoes you know what values do mosquitoes have i have no idea but there's got to be some um, but they're they're here they're part of the ecosystem <laughs> But it, it, kind of going back to our broader system of like, or conversation rather, of also what can we and can we not learn from seeing God in nature? I do think that having this reminder that God has created all of the, this, all of this creation mm-hmm. in nature, even the parts that we don't necessarily like, like the mud, the cockroaches, the mosquitoes, God still loves those things i i like to imagine i like i don't think that there's any poetic psalms written about the mud and the mosquitoes (laughs) and the cockroaches but you know god saw creation and god saw that it was good and loved Mm -hmm. it and at the time of our recording we are rapidly approaching all saints which i think the day of this recording this comes out the day before all saints right um It's a wonderful reminder to me that there are parts of me that I don't find beautiful, that I find ugly and challenging to love. And maybe the God who can love the mud and the cockroaches and the mosquitoes also loves those ugly parts of me, you know, Mm. loves the blemishes on my skin that I don't like, loves the, you know, loves me despite the negative thoughts that I have towards myself or others. The God who loves mud can also love me. That's powerful, Sarah. Thanks. That is very powerful. I was trying to bring it back to (laughs) not just complaining about mud and cockroaches. (laughs) Well, and I think what I see in the, in creation and in nature on top of what you just shared, which is powerful. And I'm going to have to ponder that for a while. Um, is order and how there's an order to everything. While we might not like to see the praying mantis eating the bumblebee, um, that is part of the created order, you know, predator and prey. And as you said, when God made creation, every day of creation, as God made the sky and the birds and the fish and the insects and the animals, it was all good. Um, even though we might not like to see that, you know, I think nature documentaries, when, when you watch like lions hunting down a gazelle, lions are beautiful. Gazelles are beautiful. It's not so pretty when they catch one, but it's part of God's creative order. And that's how 
a line feeds itself. They don't have grocery stores. <laughs> that makes everything look nice and neat and orderly. So you raise a really, really interesting point, Erica, that I've been thinking about in much of this conversation. And uh, I, I've heard it said before, I can't remember where I first heard it, but that who you root for in the nature documentary, in, in a sense, depends on which animal is the starred character for that episode, right? So if you're watching yes. National Geographic, and this week we're talking about lions, you're rooting for the lion to get for the lion. gazelle. Mm -hmm. And if this one is the gazelle week, you're rooting for the gazelle. And to some degree, I get that. But on the other hand, that kind of points to a problematic, are our ethics or is our sense of what's good or right or just just a matter of what side you happen to be told you're on at the beginning of the story and uh i i remember you've been a voice often uh, on this podcast erica who's reminded us that at least the way genesis one talks about it death isn't wired into the design of creation and mm -hmm. that all we know is a world where death operates so we can call the predator prey cycle natural that's just how things are because that's and again things adequately operate in the world that way um but the way genesis envisions the the creation at the beginning doesn't seem to be an engine built on death and the new creation that seems to be an important thread at both the hebrew scriptures and the new testament as well is that by the end god makes a new way of creation operating and even if i can't understand how it works death isn't a part of that and it's not it's not powered by something eating something else or dying anymore and you have like real concrete glimpses right from the prophets of like and the lambs and the gazelles will lie down and they won't eat each other anymore uh and the bear and the cow will graze grass side by side um and that that whatever it means to be natural isn't in like in the end what we call natural isn't necessarily the thing to hope for that like god's it god god seems to have promised a whole new rewiring of how nature works of how creation works and to me like that vision seems important so that i don't end up saying in say day-to-day uh, -day life or world events well terrible things happen that's all god's design god willed for so-and-so to be killed by so-and-so mm -hmm. because that's just the cycle of nature folks um uh and to say no ultimately god's God's promise is new creation where one thing doesn't have to eat another thing or nobody has to die in order for everybody to exist. Um, and if that's part of the, the promise where all creation is heading, um, then it makes it tenuous, at least, how much we lean on death is God's will or, or that we should make decisions about or, or claims about what God is like based on lions eating gazelles or things like that. I guess that, that's my my concern is how much of our theology is done in light of that promised future and what we call natural or unnatural. And while I understand where you're coming from with the new creation and I, I don't know how God's going to work that out where lions can lay down with lambs and not have to eat another animal because a lion is a carnivore. carnivore. I, I wonder how in creation, because we don't get that side of things. In the creation story, it sounds like Adam and Eve started off as vegetarians until the fall, and then God had to kill a lion to cover them with clothing. And then it, you know, it sounds like they, then they started eating meat because blood had already been shed. But what was that lion doing before to feed itself? Was the lion also vegetarian? Like, right. And I'm I'm totally willing to to admit that this is a question I wish that those early stories in Genesis one and two would give us answers for. And they don't, they just seem to be like, you know, it was different then. And I just nod by hanging. Oh, okay. It was different. Got it. Um, 
And so again, I'm, I, this, this, our whole conversation is on the limits of uh, what we can or can't say when we're talking about these kind of theological claims. So I, I, I'm mm-hmm. not one to say we can build a whole theology on silence in Genesis one about who ate what. But to me, it seems at the very least, like there are these hints. They're at the very, very beginning of the story and the very, very end of the story at at the end of Revelation, and well as these glimpses along the way, like new creation talk mm-hmm. in Isaiah or um, peaceful kingdom talk that um, make me nervous about building a whole theology on what I call quote unquote natural. And I guess that that's really right. the, the, yeah. the, 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 the bottom line for me is like, yeah, I, I can't answer what animals ate in Genesis one. And the writer of Genesis one is just not interested in telling me, but practically today, what I want to put guardrails up on is saying, if I see what I call cruelty or what appears to be cruelty in the natural world and I go, well, it's natural. Therefore God has endorsed this cruelty must be part of God's plan. Like, no, that feels to me like that's mm-hmm. misreading or misusing, uh, and drawing a conclusion from quote unquote natural theology that's not fair for us to make. And if I'm forced to tell lean one way or the other, what do I quote unquote see in nature versus what hope or promise are we giving about new creation? I'll just lay some cards on the table. I'm going to lean more toward how do we lean our lives in toward that promised future rather than the, the broken death fueled reality we're used to now. Um, and again, that doesn't mean that I'm always going to imagine there's a way for every situation to be resolved without any suffering or any pain or bloodshed. No, mm-hmm. I, I live in this world that you do too. But at the very least, if we can say, don't ever, let's not ever just give up on that God, that, that, uh, that, that cruelty in the world around us is, is because it exists must be God's will or God's design, whether it's human cruelty to other cruelty or, um, in the natural realm or things like that. And again, I, I guess I'm nervous. And I, I touched on this a couple episodes ago. Uh, one of the things I get nervous about in traditions that want to lean real, real, real hard on the notion of God, like sovereignly predestining all of history or God's providence, making everything happen, uh, that, that you end up saying, well, this terrible thing that happened in the news, because it happened, that's that's evidence by itself that God mm-hmm. wanted it to happen. God made it happen. And therefore, God must be OK with. Uh, you know, hostages being taken by Hamas terrorists or the bombing of a church or a hospital. I mean, like it's 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 like, no, just because it happened doesn't mean that God approved of it uh, any more than in the scriptural stories that God isn't in favor of slavery just because the Hebrews were enslaved for 400 years. Um, and similarly, in the natural world, um, I mean, like th- there are animals in 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 creation that downright seem to be intentionally cruel and will play with their food before they kill it right like like i'm not sure i want to read it well that must be what god's like because god made this creature therefore god also toys with us until god finally kills us no that so if if i'm willing to put those boundaries on i guess that that's that's where my leaning goes and i guess part of why i'm nervous about drawing the wrong conclusions from nature i guess and I, i think we need to make a distinction between you know theology based on nature and how animals treat other animals and how we as humans are tr- to treat both animals and other humans because we are of a higher order, you know, not only just scientifically speaking, but a higher order in God's creation over the animals. And so we have a different level of morals that we need to keep ourselves to. So to take that idea, you know, well, nature's cruel, so we can be cruel. Mm, no. I, I think this kind of goes back to a previous conversation that we had in this series about how we have to ground ourselves in scripture as Mm -hmm. we look for God active in the world and like where God and God is and um 
And I think that that's true with looking for God in nature as well. Like, I think it's a really good thing for us to wrestle with as we take our walks, as we go looking for God, to continue to look for God in nature, to continue Mm -hmm. to see, um, to admire God's creation and how our world has been created. But I think, again, that our theology can't come just from Mm -hmm. nature, even though God created it. Um, And I would argue God is still active in it. Um, we still have to ground ourselves Mm -hmm. in those scriptures to know what God is speaking to us about how we should live our lives. Yeah. And and I think to me, in in some ways that encapsulates the heart of what this whole series is about, that we started saying for church folk, we're used to hearing words about God in spoken and read, you know, the pages of the scriptures and, and Bible study and things like that. And there's more to God than just what's print on the printed page. But we said from the very beginning, that doesn't mean we're saying chuck the printed page, but nope, it turns out this is why, at least for the three of us, we're Christian pastors instead of transcendentalist, uh, you know, meditation people who like only have nature and experience and things like that, mm-hmm. that part of what uh, the the Christian story with with the the faith we have uh, been handed in our in the the story of Christianity is a lens that helps us to read creation in a certain way and that's not to say that there aren't other ways that other people might read creation and they might draw other conclusions about ah there's cruelty in nature therefore human beings are just messy animals and we can be like other people will draw that conclusion because if if you don't already subscribe to sort of the the framework that Christianity offers yeah, you're going to draw different conclusions about nature. And so to treat that faith as not only a list of things we believe about God, but it provides a lens through which we read the rest of nature as well, or the rest of the world and things, that's an important piece that tells us we can't just chuck uh, the Bible because, uh, well, I've read that before, and I only want to take walks in the woods. We need we need both somehow. So then we're going to invite you to join us for one more conversation uh, as we wrap up. What does all this mean? All these places and rabbit trails we've gone in these recent weeks looking at the unspoken God. Uh, Join us next time for one more conversation there here on Crazy Faith Talk. See y'all. Bye.